Um, well, hey, if y'all would like to make your way to Psalm 8, if you know how to find it in your Bibles, Psalm 8, Psalms are in the middle, roughly. If you have one of these uh, black hardcover Bibles that are around, it's page 450. And just as you're turning there, and as I'm turning there, um, thank you, Matt, for that very kind introduction. Uh, when you serve as a pastor in a local church, it's not that often that you get to be in other churches on Sundays. But when you do, for me at least, it's hard for it not to be restful. And what I mean is, when you're... Uh, let me come at it this way. You're generally always just trying to be unanxiously present, to love God and your neighbor. Just, just as, a, as a worshiper primarily, and then just as a helpful pastoral presence to other people. That doesn't always happen, because you're saying, oh, I haven't met that person before, let me say hello to them, or there's a huge mess in the restroom. Uh, we don't have our own space, and so you actually never know what the restrooms are gonna look like when you walk in. Or, wow, it's really dirty here, or man, all the volunteers didn't show up, or whatever, and none of that is happening for me this morning. Um, so, I mean, it's, all, it's, it's my first time in this space, and uh, I could have walked into this place and it could have been just trashed in a dump. And I, I, like, this place could have been a dumpster. And I, I would have been perfectly at rest. <laughs> but it's not a dumpster. This is really nice. Uh, so thanks for having me. You can write that down. You can quote me on that um, before we read the Bible. It's really, really nice to be with you. Um, selfishly. It is restful for me to be here. It's really a joy. So thanks for having me. Psalm 8. Start with the foreword. To the choir master, according to the Giddith, Psalm of David, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is God's word. Let me pray for us as we continue. Almighty, everlasting Father, we pray that you would open your word to our hearts this morning and that you would open our hard hearts to receive your word. And we pray that you would quiet within us now every voice but your own. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. There is a famous concert violinist named Joshua Bell. And about 10 years ago, 
he conducted this experiment uh, down in DC with, uh, it was in cooperation with the Washington Post. And uh, what he did was he put on a baseball hat and a hooded sweatshirt and jeans, and usually concert violinists dress nicer than that, a little bit nicer than that. And he went to the DC Metro station, that's their version of the subway, it's way better than what we have in Philadelphia. Um, and he went to one of the busiest ones at the busiest time in a morning rush hour like 7.30 to 8.15, everybody's on their way to work. And he set up a little space for himself and he took out the violin and he played a few of the most difficult pieces that he'd learned um, in his career as a concert violinist. And uh, the expectation of uh, Joshua Bell and the Washington Post was that uh, you know, thousands of people streamed through this station during that time every weekday, thousands. And they expected that a few hundred people would stop to listen to this music that people who actually were going to a concert would pay perhaps hundreds of dollars to hear. Seven stopped. Seven. And most of them were children. And so, obviously, it prompts the question, why? I'm not that overly critical of those who uh, were rushing on their way to work. I am a slave to my schedule. Um, I also know what it's like for my children on the way somewhere to want to stop and listen to anything or pick up anything, sometimes in the middle of a crosswalk. So I'm not overly critical there, but um, a friend of mine named Stephen Muse, who trains counselors, uses this example of beauty in the background, of just this exquisitely beautiful music that is not worth stopping and listening to, um, because for most of the people there, and for most of us, m maybe there's somebody some, somewhere terribly important to get, but for most of us, it's just the driving rhythm of our schedule, and all that is amazing that we are constantly surrounded by is in the background. And um, in his practice of training counselors, but this I would suggest to you is not just about training counselors, anybody who is ever in any kind of helping relationship, and I don't just mean, count, I don't mean just helping professions, I mean if you are in a relationship, if you're a sibling, if you're a friend, if you're a parent, if you're a church member, and you're around someone who's frankly amazing in, in a lot of the ways that Nate teased out for us during the call to worship. Everybody's amazing. Particularly people's stories are amazing. And right before, right, right, right in your presence, if you're enacting, inter interacting with another person, whatever the context, you're in the presence of something amazing, of an amazing narrative. Um, and it's lost to us. It's totally lost to us. We don't access it. How do we get all that is amazing in God's creation, in God's people? How do we get all that is amazing in God's world out of the background and into the foreground? To behold it. That's Psalm 8. Welcome to Psalm 8. Uh, this is a psalm of awe. And there are two main things, and these are just my two points for the rest of the sermon. There are two main things that the psalmist David beholds in 
awe in this psalm. First, he is in awe of God, and secondly, he is in awe of people, of mankind, of man. In awe of God and what it means to be in awe of people. Those are our two points. First, David is in awe of God. That might not surprise you to hear at a worship service. We are to be in awe of God, but look closer. Look at what exactly that means. The psalm begins and ends in verses one and nine with the line, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. Um, the, really, the main point of this psalm, the beginning and the ending, there's really no getting around it, is God's greatness, his grandeur, his vastness, his immensity, in a word, his glory. Glory. That is a word we've said several times already in this worship service. Do you know what it means, the word glory? In its most basic sense, the word glory means weight, weightiness. Pastor Tim Keller has a great illustration that I'll never forget about this. Uh, when, you, when you wanna know what, it, what the noun glory means. Uh, picture a boulder on the edge of a cliff and there's a pool of water below. Uh, the boulder rolls off the cliff, falls into the pond of water and the boulder, what happens? The boulder displaces the water, maybe all of it, uh, depending on how much boulder there is, because the boulder has more glory than the water. And so when you think about the glory of God, you're thinking of all the weightiness of all things, the 1.2 billion stars for every person on earth that Nate mentioned earlier. And the weightiness of all that, the weightiness of one star, the mass of one and God's glory is greater. That's one kind of way that David is in awe of God. That's just one way that David is in awe of God. There's another sense in which David is in awe of God, though. There's another kind of awe. I want you to see how in the first four verses of this psalm, and it'll be helpful to keep it in front of you, there's this zoom in, zoom out. Starts by zooming out. Verse one, you set your glory above the heavens. So really the biggest things that we can imagine, we look up and we behold what, this is the small fraction of what we can see with our naked eye of the universe. We behold the greatness around us. You've set your glory above the heavens. Zoom in. What does he talk about next? Babies. Infants. I was reading this with my son this morning because he woke up really, really early. And he said, what about toddlers? I said, actually, the point is smaller than toddlers, Charlie. As small as we ever are, babies, infants, heavens, zoom in, infants. Verse three, zoom out again. Heavens, the moon, and the stars which you've set in place, zoom in again. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? This is what David is in awe of. This is my point. Um, a God who is completely uh, transcendent and glorious than, more glorious than anything else we can measure is attentive to not just the largest things in his own creation, but the, the least, the smallest. 
Um, when we look at the first and ninth verse, the main point, as I've said of this psalm, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. There's something important going on there that I, want you, I don't want you to miss. Um, David is not saying something like, O God, our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He's saying, O Lord, capital L-O-R-D, our Lord, capital L, lowercase o-r-d. What does that mean? What's the significance of that? That's in your text, by the way, in verse one and verse nine. You may know this, you may not, but when you see capital L-O-R-D, it's actually the name of God. It's a proper name. Um, it's, it's, it's the personal name of God that he gave to the Israelites, which was in another song that we sang this morning, the great I Am. It is the name Yahweh, which God revealed to his people. We're told in Exodus chapter three. David is writing Yahweh, except for they didn't say Yahweh because it was too holy to say. They used this tetragrammaton as the, the, the theological word for it. This way of saying his name without saying it because his name was so holy. So they called him Lord, or uh, Adonai, as it was interpreted later. He's saying, Yahweh our master, Yahweh our Lord. And there is a, that phrase is packed with meaning. Uh, if you know the story, Exodus 3, when God gives his name, Yahweh, I am, or as it's translated in Exodus 3, I am that I am. What does that mean? that God's name is I am. That's not a name, that's a sentence. He illustrates the name. Do you remember how he illustrates it? With a burning bush. But it's not just a burning bush. It is a fire that is with a bush. It's actually not technically a burning bush at all. That's actually, maybe that was taught to you in Sunday school. That's a poor phrasing of what's happening because the bush is not burning. The fire is with the bush, but not consuming it. What does that mean? It means the fire doesn't need the bush. It means the fire, God who is a consuming fire, is with the bush, but doesn't need it for fuel. And in a similar way, when God says, I am that I am, he says, I want you to know that I am completely independent of you, and I don't need you, but I choose to be with you. There is nothing about you being here that, that required, that like, I do not require you to be here. I don't need you. I do want you though. I want to be with you. I choose to be with you because I love you. And the Bible saying, and David is saying when he considers all the glory of the universe, that's God's name. And your name in scripture, by the way, is not just what you're called. Um, it's not your nickname. It is your essence. It's your reputation. It is your way. And what's God's way? God's way is to not need people. I mean, how, how would he need us? Look at the moon. Look at the stars. Think of the trillions of galaxies. And he notices you. That is his way. That's his name. It's his reputation. It's his character. And David is in awe of that. That is amazing. 
O Yahweh, our Lord, how great is your name. His way is to care for people even though he is totally transcendent and overwhelmingly glorious. That is his name. And in verse two, it's the first place he goes after this, just marveling that that is God's way. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Isn't that God's way? Isn't it God's way to, uh, in the face of a Goliath, send a David? Not, 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 not com- combat the, 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 the fiercest things that we can face in this world with another 10-foot soldier with impenetrable armor. He sends a boy with a sling. Because he doesn't need him. That's the point. And he chooses to use them because he loves them and he wants to. And later David writes a song about it. That was me with the sling, the baby against the avenger. David is clearly in awe of this. More than any other created thing, brothers and sisters never lose the awe of this. The transcendent and glorious God directs his attention more than anything else in his creation to you and to me and to the person in this room for whom you have the most contempt. The person in your city and in the world for whom you have the most contempt. So what is it about these people? What is it about us? In awe of God, he doesn't stop there. Second point, he's also in awe of man. David is in awe of humans. There was an installation, a very strange installation at the Museum of Modern Art in New York uh, with a performance artist named Marina Abramovich. It was a few years ago now, um, but it was, it was a really interesting installation. It was a woman uh, who, for a few weeks at the Museum of Modern Art, had a chair, and there was an empty chair across from her. And anybody who wanted to in the world could come to the museum and line up and stand in line to get their turn to sit in that seat, and she would just stare at them. That sounds ridiculous. Um, for, you know, some of us roll our eyes and say, this is why I can't stand modern art. <laughs> but actually, actually, it really deeply moved people. Um, I will bet some of the toughest people who you know couldn't stand it. Because she beheld them. And you could stay as long as you wanted. There's really frustrated people in line. Because you could stay there for hours as long as you could endure it and just watch this person beholding you. The point being, she was looking, no, no talking, no conversation, she was looking for something amazing to behold. And you could do it for a second or for a day. David is in awe of not just God, but of people in this way. Now, hear me. He's not worshiping people. But what does he see? Verses five and six. You have made him mankind, people, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. He uses the word glory. We've been crowned 
with glory and honor, every one of us. And God has given us, every one of us, dominion over the works of God's hands. This is... um, This is the Genesis 1 language of image bearing. You may know that phrase. Um, God says in Genesis 1, the creation account, um, within the, the, the Trinity God, let us make man in our image, man and woman, male and female. Let us make God, let's make man in the image of God. Part of what that means, and as mankind is quickly commissioned to do later in the chapter, is that mankind is intended to rule creation under the divine ruler, not in spite of him or not in opposition to him, but as his divine instruments, as his image bearers in his creation. That's what David's talking about in verse 6, where he says, you've given humanity dominion over the works of your hands. Let me come at it this way. Um, When we talk about what it means to be made in the image of God, if you're familiar with the Old Testament of our scriptures, Uh, One of the commandments, the second commandment, uh, God says to Israel after they've been set free as a nation of slaves to be a free nation in the book of Exodus, the second commandment he gives them is to never ever make an image of God. Um, Never make an image of him in the form of any physical thing. Why does that matter? Why is that such a big deal? Well, in the ancient world, everybody made images of their gods. Um, And it was kind of useful because it would help you picture your God in a certain way. If you had a God of fertility or a God of agriculture or um, a God of uh, the heavens or gods of the dust, you could could form them in certain ways. If if your idol was a strong idol, well, you'd have a strong God. You could just look at the idol to see that. But the problem with that is as soon as you look at uh, inevitably an image tends to have one characteristic, and God doesn't just have one characteristic. He's powerful, he's mighty, but he's also loving. So immediately you condense God down to one thing, and that's terrible. That's, that's damaging his, his reputation, his name. The other reason that was, for me, a lot more complex and interesting is because we are all his images, We are all made in God's image. It's almost like he's saying, don't make an image of me. Look around. No one here is God, but they're made in my image. Don't be tempted to worship an image, but look at them so you can see something of me, especially as they begin to imitate me as they were intended to do from the beginning. Look at the, don't miss it, glory all around you. We're not worshiping each other, but there is glory in every seat that's filled with somebody. Besides that one has a water bottle on it. David says so. Can I ask you, do you look around at people and say, this, there's glory here? Do you look at one another and say, there's glory here? Maybe we do for the models among us, for the most beautiful, for the most productive, maybe, depending on the culture, the most entertaining. What about the most, what about the people who are decaying before our very eyes? What about the poor? 
the sick? What about the glory of the elderly? Or as this passage indicates, the infant or the unborn or the addict. And be careful how you separate yourself from addicts. Don't actually. What about when you look in the mirror? Do you look at yourself and say, there's glory here. It's tarnished. But sinners don't lose God's image. Every, just, I'm not gonna say every, just about every reputable theologian from the early church right on through the Reformation to the present day looks at the scriptures and nobody really, nobody reputable thinks that the image of God was lost at the fall. It was tarnished. It was uh, marred frightfully, as John Calvin says, but not lost. There's glory here. And we're terrible at recognizing it. And if anybody does actually look at us and look us right between the eyes and tell us how much we're worth and tell them, tells us that they love us and uh, says, echoing the voice of, the God, of God, um, like, um, like the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, um, the spirit of sonship that bears witness within you saying, Abba, Father. If you hear that echoed in someone else and they look you between the eyes and say, you're worth more to me and to God than I can tell you, and I love you, you probably squirm because you can't bear it. Why? Shame. Because we've sinned and we've been sinned against. And some of the toughest people around us can't bear to be looked between the eyes and sit still and receive the news that they are unimaginably loved. That's just true. Sin. Sin. Listen. Um, At the end of the day, we don't recognize this glory because of sin. To use the language of this psalm, uh, you want to understand kind of a paradigmatic view of what's going on in sin as the Bible describes it. God says... I've given you all dominion over my creation. In sin, what people say is, okay, God, thank you. We're going to put you under our feet too. You've given us dominion over everything. How about you too? And we try to put God under our feet. This is the temptation in the garden, and it's been working out ever since. So we don't really experience the dominion that Psalm 8 is referring to. Do we? Do you feel like you have dominion over this world, over your work, over your relationships? The way that we were intended to. You know, uh, the writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews, I know there's been a women's Bible study in this church about the book of Hebrews. There's a, there's a place in Hebrews chapter two where the writer of the book of Hebrews is writing to a group of discouraged Christians who have hurt and been hurt are being persecuted increasingly for their faith, and they're not feeling the glory. They're not feeling the glory, and so the writer of Hebrews takes them to Psalm 8. There's a poll quote in Hebrews chapter 2 of Psalm 8, verses 5 and 6. And the writer says, listen, I know you're not feeling the glory, but I want to give you some hope. 
and the hope comes from Jesus. The hope comes from Jesus. This is quoting Hebrews 2, verses 9 and 10. The writer says, we don't see all things put under our feet, subject to us, the way it's supposed to be in Psalm 8. We don't see it. It's not happening. It's not a reality. But do you know what we do see? We see Jesus. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Ring a bell? That's the humanity language of Psalm 8. Jesus is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And the writer goes on to say, Jesus, by his death, brings many sons to glory, brings us back to glory. What does all this mean? It means that the man, Jesus Christ, upheld the glory of humanity in all of its integrity and took it to the cross. In himself, he had the glory of God and the glory of man, the perfect image, the perfect icon, image of God, unmarred, untainted by sin, and took it to the cross for our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification. There's this amazing moment in, uh, that I think always brings this home for me, and we read it at our Maundy Thursday service uh, the week before last uh, during Holy Week. And it's the scene in the Gospel of John where Jesus becomes, comes before Pilate. Pilate, uh, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, who was the one who was legally responsible. Uh, many others were responsible, but he was the one who was legally responsible for the death of Jesus, his condemnation to the cross. And after he's been interviewing Jesus uh, about who he is and what kind of king he is, and um, you know, then he, he, he has him flogged and he has him robed and there's the crown of thorns that are pressed into his skull, uh, mocking his kingship. He brings him out before the people and do you know what he says? He says way more than he knew. He says, behold the man. Behold the man. Behold the only perfect man who ever walked the earth. Behold the only true human who upheld the glory of man in all of its integrity. And he's bleeding out his life right before you. Behold the man. Behold perfect humanity given as a ransom for many. More ironic words. I think it's even more ironic than Palm Sunday. Behold the man. In all of his glory, this despised man that you're destroying before your very eyes. Behold the man. And in that moment, the Son of God was taking on humanity to do what? To bring you back to glory. I loved the series that our churches shared. Uh, it was a little bit of a stretch for me during Lent. Looking at all these different aspects of our salvation, this is, this is what you guys did too, right? Um, uh, that our salvation isn't just one thing. It's all by grace and it's all by faith, but multiple things are happening and we need to reflect on this. Sometimes we talk about what it means to be saved. Oh, and we should talk about what it means to be saved. The Bible talks about what it means to be saved, but we usually, that's usually us saying what it means to be justified. 
a once-for-all declaration that we are pardoned and free and perfectly forgiven because of Jesus' righteousness given to us and him taking our sin. That great exchange, that is what it means to be saved, but it is not all that it means to be saved. Being adopted and set free as slaves is what it means to be saved. Being sanctified and being renewed in our inner being is part of the process of that salvation being worked out in us. And the end point for me was most moving of all. Glorification. Every, every bit of the damage, the pain, the evil that has befallen humanity, every death, uh, every corpse, at the end of the day, all of the glory originally intended for humanity is coming back as if it were never lost and then some. That also is what it means that we will be finally and fully saved. Glory. Glory. He's bringing us back to glory. Listen, I want to give you some homework. Because you're Christians, many of you, maybe not all of you. I'm very glad you're here if you're not, but I think this particularly is for the Christians, which you all are invited into if that's not an identifying term for you yet. You are one who, in our words of encouragement after confession, is being renewed day by day on the way to a full possession of the glory that you've lost. That's your reality. And that means... Believe it or not, that in you and your brothers and sisters in Christ, there is more and more and more of this glory yet to be seen. It's happening in you, it's happening in your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I charge you who are being glorified to look for it everywhere this week. Look for it in the people who you're most tempted to despise. Pick them Get their face in your mind and make it your job to find out what's amazing. And for you who are in the helping professions, I do not believe we can help people until, unless we do this. I do not believe we can help people who come to us with their trauma and their burdens and their pain and their depression and all the ways that they're scarred by themselves and others in sin. I do not believe we can help them until we recognize God's grace already at work and recognize what is, how are they still vertical? What story is here? What's amazing here? What am I not getting that if I did, I would weep instead of being enraged at them? I give you this homework. Find the glory. In the worst among us, it's not all the way gone there's still a flicker of it. And the other homework assignment is for you when you look in the mirror and you despair over your own sin. I want you to know that whatever you're experiencing in your life, whatever hopelessness you might carry around, whatever is happening that you don't understand and you may never completely understand in this life, I want you to know that one thing for sure is always happening. Always, and you can bank on it. 
whatever you're experiencing, God is always in the process of making you a more glorious son or daughter, not in spite of what's happening, but through it. Just look at Jesus. Look at what it cost him to secure that assurance for us. And a really, really practical one, uh, finally, this is going to be a little bit uncontextual for you, but there's a ministry that our church has partnered with in Philadelphia called Best Foot Forward. It's, it's actually not a ministry, but our church partners with it. And they, uh, every other Thursday, they come together at Sunday Breakfast Rescue Mission at 13th and Vine, and they wash and bandage the feet of the homeless. Now, if you're, if you're homeless, your feet are a wreck. This is just a fact. And if you live on the streets, your feet go fast. Um, and you need them because you've got to keep moving. Um, and for these, this is particularly a ministry for men, or a nonprofit that serves men that others have made a ministry for themselves. And for these men who have lost their dignity or feel like they have, and would consider themselves, most of them, completely unglorious or in some practice of compensating for an inner awareness uh, of their need. We get to look at, them, look at them in the eye and wash the feet of those that our city have discarded. And with our hands, and with our eyes, and with our words, we get to name the glory. Name the glory. And this is powerful. Be amazed, brothers and sisters. I don't know if there's a way that that could be worked out here in your county. I'm sure that there are a multitude of ways. Be amazed, be in awe of the glory of God and the glory he has put in man and the glory that will be fully realized as the Spirit does his work through Christ. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you um, that you have set all things under our feet, although we're not worthy of it, and that you have not taken that vocation away from us because of our sin. You've sent Christ to forgive us, to renew us, to ultimately glorify us and restore that vocation that you gave us at the beginning, that job as image bearers and rulers under you with love for God and love for man in our hearts, in humility and gratitude. May we do it this week. And as we do, may others around us see the glory that is in the background. As it comes to the foreground, may we worship you like we never did before because we're seeing things that we've never seen before that were there all along. We know that you will do this work because you have sealed us and indwell us by your spirit. And you will not leave us as we are. Amen. Hallelujah. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.